This is episode number 177 of the Rising Man podcast with Andy Grant. Silence kills men. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you for joining me here today. Jetty Azuma behind the mic once again, checking in for another interview on the Rising Man podcast. Before we go into our guest for today, make sure you go to risingman.org. Check out all the amazing opportunities we have coming up in the summertime. So many ways for you to get more involved. So many ways for you to level up in your life and become the man that you want to be. So go check it out today. See what's popping and get yourself invested today. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Andy Grant is the guest I have on the show today. Andy has been helping men for over a decade as a best-selling author, award-winning speaker, transformational energy coach, healer, and suicide prevention activist. He holds certificates in positive psychology, the in-wake and coaching system, Akashic Records, life activation, and other leadership programs and energy work modalities. Andy is the founder of Real Men Feel, a movement encouraging men to come out of the emotional closet, producing and hosting the Real Men Feel podcast since February of 2016. As a survivor of multiple suicide attempts, Andy knows how low we as human beings can feel, and he is committed to helping people realize how magnificent life is meant to be. In this episode, Andy opens up about the journey in and out of depression as a young man. We discussed how being a man is however you define it, that there's no universal definition. Silence kills men, why men are suffering from depression and suicide at alarming rates and what we can do about it. We talked about the stories of emotions we receive as children and how they're so critical in our development. Andy and I talked about our experiences and how we can do better for the next generation. Andy shared why it's important to be willing to be wrong. We also talked about a spirituality and the role it plays in healing pain and resolving escapist tendencies. Lastly, why the ego wants to think of itself as complicated as a defense mechanism from the uncomfortable. Without further ado, Mr. Andy Grant. Rising Man family, I've got another amazing man joining me here today, all the way from Littleton, Massachusetts, Andy Grant from Real Men Feel, the podcast, and so many other places, man. Good to have you here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. I'm going to jump right into it with you because you've done this many times before. The way I like to open up my show is by asking the question, what does it mean to be a man? Mm. You know, for a long time, I couldn't answer that. I so did not identify with what I was. I thought I was not a man. So for me, what it means to be a man was I grew up with a distorted view. Mm. Like it was all confusion and it was a mix of Hollywood movies and probably what's now called toxic masculinity. I thought you had to be that to be mm. a man. Mm-hmm. Now, through years of working on myself and talking to a lot of other guys, you know, what it means to be a man is whatever you like doing, mm-hmm. right? If you're a man and you do something, well, then by definition, in my eyes, then that's manly. Mm-hmm. So if you consider yourself a man, whatever you do is being a man. I don't believe in the box, the narrow definition and anything like that. Page right out of my own book. That's why I asked that question too. Sometimes it's a little bit of a trick question, right? Because I'm trying to see, well, what's your angle? What is the way you see manhood? And that's what I've come to realize myself after asking this question hundreds of times is that there is no singular Webster's Dictionary definition of what a man is. And that's probably what got us into the trouble in the first place. Since you've been in a similar question and inquiry for a long time like I have, I found that there's a distinction to be made between man and male and masculine. When I was growing up, those were all the same thing. And now I'm understanding they're very much different. So what's your perspective on that? Yeah, there's masculine energy in humans, regardless of their gender. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and male, I would say, is the gender. And being a man, you can also, you know, it's humankind. 
before we're men, we are humans. Mm -hmm. And all humans have a lot of things in common, including emotions and doubts and worries and, and all those things that a lot of guys, in their effort to be more masculine, perhaps try to deny and stuff. Yeah, man. Well, we're definitely on the same page here. I'm interested in when that pivot happened for you, because I really didn't start to make that distinction until I started going deeper into this question with many more men. When did you start to see a distinction there, have a different understanding of what it meant to be a man? Yeah, it was very gradual for me. You know, I was really depressed. I uh, battled suicidal thoughts. I've made multiple attempts to end my life in my teens and into my 20s. So I think I was in my early 30s before I began to have a glimpse of confidence in myself that, oh, maybe whatever I choose to do is okay. Mm. But I grew up an only child. I was raised by a single mom. So I didn't have any sort of male role model. So it really was, you know, TV and the movies for the most part. Mm. And my own father, he was an alcoholic. It was labeled bipolar. He struggled through lots of life. would start and fail businesses, uh, a lot of affairs. And... You know, I didn't identify with wanting to live that way. Mm. One thing you often told me was that high school was the best years of your life. Mm. Wow. And I thought, well, if that's true, well, why does anyone live beyond that? So at a really young age, you know, I can remember having these thoughts in like third grade. So I'm sure they happened before that, that, well, I'll just live, I'll go to high school and then I'll kill myself. Like why bother going beyond the best years? That doesn't make any sense to me. Sure. Now, it was only as an adult looking back, my dad was 20 years old telling me that high school was the best years of his life. So he didn't have much beyond that himself. But again, as a kid, you don't get that bigger picture message. I just hear an older man telling me when the peak of life is. But as I grew up, elementary school was no picnic. Junior high wasn't. So I had made multiple attempts to end my life before I ever got to high school, hmm. let alone graduate from it. Man, I really appreciate whenever I get somebody on the show who's willing to speak about the things that most men are, don't have the courage or confidence to speak of yet. I know that that's a journey. And one of the things you wrote when we were talking about what we could talk about, you said silence kills men. I thought that was so powerful. And so let's give voice to that, what you were feeling back then. I imagine it wasn't something that was very easy to talk about with anybody. That's, that's kind of the common story I hear about folks who are in that place. Yeah, I didn't talk about it with anybody. My worldview from a really young age was life sucks, then you die. Mm -hmm. So why bother? Why put up with that? Age five, when my parents got divorced, and at that same time that my dad is you know kicked out of the house and it was an acrimonious separation, a neighbor started molesting me. Mm. And I thought, if I tell anybody, I'll be the next male kicked out of my house. So I better just shut up, keep it in. And my mom saw a change in me. I went from being this outgoing, happy kid to just be very sullen and quiet. And they thought it was the divorce. Like there was a reason to put this behavior on something. So no one probed deeper. I really started shutting down. And, you know, that's how I learned to badly navigate life. I didn't speak. I didn't share what was going on. I decided that experience told me I couldn't trust adults and I couldn't trust men. I've heard that story many times from many men, something very similar. And I think at that age, how could we possibly comprehend that? You know, especially yeah. if there's nobody there to help us process or understand that. So having suicidal thoughts at such a young age, I didn't experience that myself, but I imagine that Take us through that a little bit. What is that like? Is that a scary place to be? Is it? Living seems scarier than dying. Mm. So I was not raised with any sort of religion. So I believed that I wanted just my life to stop. I did not like living. So why do this? The analogy for me as a kid was, well, if I don't like a movie, I walk out, right? I turn the channel. My life is no different. Sure. And I had friends that moved away. And this is before social media and stuff. And, you know, if a friend moved away in elementary school and never saw or heard of him again. Mm -hmm. So I thought death would just be me moving away. And I thought, you know, sure, my parents might be sad, but they'll get over it. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I really, and I think this is common for lots of people with, with suicidal ideation, like we lie a lot and we lie to ourselves the most. I really believed that others would be better off without me there. Mm. You know, once my battles with depression, I'd been in and out of hospitals. You know, once I was a teenager, you know, I thought people would be better off without worrying about me. I should just get broken me out of the way. And I grew up thinking I was broken. I was flawed. And the worst combination there can be for a human being is helpless and hopeless. People offered me help. People would see that I was despondent. I remember junior high, uh, there was a period that I was a cutter and teachers and guidance counselors would see like scars on my wrist, but I was also a really good student. Mm. So no one wants to think the kid who's doing well in school can't have problems. Sure. So whatever bullshit reason I gave to anybody to explain whatever was going on, they gladly took it. Mm. Nobody pushed deeper, but you can't help people that don't want help. And I believed I was too worthless, too hopeless to be saved. I thought I was so different and unique. And one of the things that made me share all this as an adult was because as a teenager, I never heard of anybody having had suicidal thoughts or attempts, and then later were glad that they were still alive. Right. So that transition just wasn't even in the realm of possibility. And because no one spoke about it, the only time I was around people talking about suicide was when I was put into mental hospitals. So that made it seem even just crazier that I had these thoughts at all but they're horribly common. And just give us a reference of time. So what era were you in when this was all happening for you? We were talking like the 80s. Let's see, yeah, all in the 80s. The last time, it was the early 90s, the last time I was in a hospital and I felt like an adult. I was depressed and suicidal and I put my, I went to the emergency room mm-hmm. and that was the first time I was hospitalized without making an attempt. Mm-hmm. Again, so for me, I thought, oh, I'm growing up. You know, <laughs> I, was yeah. in, I was in my mid twenties and I'm like, I can seek help mm-hmm. without you know, just falling flat on my face. I can seek help without making an attempt. Like that was huge for me. And it took that long until I was willing to receive help. Mm. I intentionally used failed suicide at him because I felt like a failure. Mm. Uh, so I don't use, you know, PC language around those terms. But I, you know, my fifth attempt, I had done something that already didn't work before. Mm. And I'm just like, what kind of, kind of a freaking loser am I? I am obviously not good at living. I'm not good at dying. There's got to be a better way. And it was the first time I was really, you know, praying and I'm sobbing. It's kind of the dark night of the soul stereotype. Mm. I finally felt and heard that, you know, there is another way. And maybe you were going through all this so that you can help others not go through it. Maybe all of this has a point. Mm. And that was the first time I had any sort of glimmer of the possibility of hope. Wow. And I wasn't just depressed nonstop, but whenever I was happy, I thought that was the lie. Uh. I thought depress me was truth. Mm. Everything else was trickery. You know, it was those temporary flights of fancy. And, and I, you know, I thought normal people were, I thought they were like Ned Flanders, just always high, always just flat, woohoo, up high all the time. They're just, everything's oakly doakly. And that's what normal people were. Sure. So I didn't realize that kind of the roller coaster of life is very real and we all have emotions and we will always have ups and downs. But I've grown enough so that my downs today, I probably feel better than my highs in my teenage years. Yeah. I really want to highlight something that just became aware of in listening to you speak. When you said that there was nobody even talking about suicidal thoughts when you were going through this, I was just thinking about the 80s and the 90s that I grew up in a small town, but I don't remember any stories when I was growing up all the way from kindergarten all the way through high school till I left my town of anybody even attempting or succeeding with suicide. Now, I grew up in a really small town. I mean, maybe like 8,000 people, but I'm sure that Either it was happening and people were covering it up, or maybe it was just really a small town and there was a lot of people who were experiencing those thoughts or those challenges, but weren't speaking about it. Now, fast forward, 
obviously a man like yourself in your position with all the work that you're doing, you're talking about this very openly. And now I can think about number of people who have talked about, yeah, I've had suicidal thoughts. Yeah, I've attempted suicide. Yeah, I've spent a stretch in a mental hospital. Just to acknowledge how far we've come, even just that, how far we've come with being able to speak about mental health. Sure, we still have the stats that show us that we've got an uphill battle still, but I think that's a huge note of progress, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's no longer, you know, the stigma and like, oh, there's no scarlet letter now. Like I, you know, at the time, I certainly, I lost friends. I had friends that just couldn't comprehend, like, why would you want to die? I, they didn't, I would come back home after being in a hospital for a month, come back. And they were just people that had no idea what to do with me. Right. And I couldn't understand that. And what I always told people then and tell them now, if you can't understand why someone might want to kill themselves, like be glad, like mm-hmm. don't try to. Like, I wouldn't wish those thoughts on anybody. So if it doesn't make any sense to you, good. Right? Like, I'm not going to, because back when I was 17, I was so sure of my limited worldview that this life sucks, then you die, that if you didn't want to die, I thought you were nuts. Mm. I thought you were living in denial. And I thought I could just logically talk to anybody and make them realize that they should be dead. It was a horrible way to live. My identity became so intertwined with depression and suicide attempts, I had no idea who I might be without that. Wow. And before we get into the turn, because like you already alluded to, there was some kind of like aha moment where it began to pivot to the other direction for you. Maybe this is a stretch, but starting off with the question about what it means to be a man and your reference for that, if looking back on it, how much would you say was your concept or your idea of who you needed to be as a man in this world was connected to what you were feeling at that time, was connected to your depression and your desire not to want to live anymore? There were a lot of circumstances against me. So I don't remember this, but my dad tells me that one of my first experiences as a toddler was being in a waiting room while he got shock treatment. Mm. And so my dad was openly emotional, usually at times of depression preceding mania. So I had this perception that my dad is emotional. He gets taken here and tortured. Without anyone consciously training anything, I thought I'm not supposed to feel anything. I'm not supposed to share this. This must be kept in and, you know, be the man of the house and look out for your mom. And, you know, I'm eight years old. All right, well, this means put on that facade. Got everything figured out. Don't need anybody's help. That's part of that stoic ideal of American masculinity, the the rugged individual. Mm. And I find time and time again that that is absolute bullshit. That's really interesting to me because now I'm thinking deeper into this conversation about men's work and what we're really here to do. And I would volunteer and say that the real long lasting cultural change around this stuff happens with the way that we raise and parent children. And so in the grand scheme of things, yes, we want to work on ourselves as individuals. Yes, the men who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s who are going through these challenges, there needs to be services and support for that. But at the end of the day, isn't it really about the way that we're raising children? Thinking about that, what you just told us, that story you told us about your childhood and your perception of what it meant to have emotions and how to deal with them and how it influenced you. Yeah, but without that work on ourselves, we just continue that generational wounding Right. Right. Hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. And a hurt man that doesn't know what being a man means, doesn't know how to express his masculinity, raising children, you know, you can't pass on what you don't know, what you don't have. Right. Yeah. But it's work on yourself that just stops. That doesn't help others either. So it's working on yourself so that you can serve others. I think that's the recipe we all need. And are you a father? Do you have children? I am not. Okay. No, I swore as a child I would not do this to anybody else. When 
my dad would tell me how, you know, mental illness and alcoholism, it, it's all genetic. It gets passed on. Sorry. And I remember being pissed. Like, why did you have me? What? And then, you know, I also discovered I was not planned. <laughs> they were college sweethearts. There was no, you know, intentional plot to have this thing called Andy in their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, the way my dad did not get along with his father. His father was physically abusive. So my dad wanted to be my best friend, which meant he really wasn't the dad. There's no discipline. with just like, let's be pals. Let's be buddies. Talk to me about anything. And he would tell me things that felt inappropriate as a child to receive. But uh, again, that I was a mistake, that condoms break. This is all at like 12 and 13, being told that uh, my grandmother would bring up discussions of whether I should be given up for adoption or maybe an abortion is more likely. And I just remember like, grandma, what? (laughs) You know, you're like shattering my worldview even worse now. But again, it was his intent was to show how much he loved me to make this great connection. Mm. So wounded men have wounded children. I love your story, man. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. So I want to come back to, again, the turn and when things started switching for you. But just presently, do you still battle suicidal thoughts? Do you still battle depression these days? No, it's been years, which isn't to say it can't come back. I always tell people that if you've ever seriously contemplated suicide, that thought will always be lurking somewhere, waiting for you to be down and weak and resurface again. Right. And though I speak to that and teach that when it happens to me, I'm still like, not me. I'm pissed and furious. And, you know, I take the fall harder. But no, I have been, I don't even know how long it's been since an attempt, but it's, you know, seriously suicidal thoughts, plotting and planning maybe four years ago. Uh So I guess I don't have like a suicide diary, though I did as a kid because that was part of my identity. But yeah, it feels like a good, healthy while. So that's why I know it can be dealt with and overcome. I appreciate you saying that what I thought of the image that came to my mind was it's like having that card in the deck. And even if it's at the bottom of the deck, it's always in there. You know yeah. that it's lurking there, but which I think I wouldn't identify as an alcoholic myself, but I've had friends and acquaintances who are alcoholics. There's something too, I always identifying that, hey, this is something that may always happen to me for the rest of my life. And there's like a freedom acknowledging and accepting like that's part of who I am and who I've been. It'll always be with me, but I get to choose what I do in each moment and every day of my life. Yeah. The trouble for me was I would have emotional tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. So when I was depressed and suicidal, I was sure I've always been this way or it's been 90% of my life. And then when I'm not, oh, oh yeah, I have a couple little blips in my life. Perhaps that's all. If it returned, I like, oh, it just felt like a bigger drop somehow. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess that comes up just from the familiarity of having dealt with it for so long. It's like, oh, nope, there it is. I was living in fantasy land for a little while, but there's familiar old, dark, depressed Andy, right? Yeah. And sometimes, again, they're just thoughts. So sometimes I would have a suicidal thought and it would just be so silly. I would laugh. Like, I remember getting a flat tire. I'm like, oh, I got to use my tire. And like, I should just jump into traffic and kill myself. And I'm like, really? Come on. It's just, it's a tire. Like, I would have this, my own thought made me laugh at its absurdity. Right. But other times I'm like, yeah, you're right. You know, it's uh, horrible. That's actually a good distinction to make. I never thought of this before, but so there's suicidal thoughts, right? I mean, I have crazy thoughts. I mean, there's sometimes I, when I was sleep deprived and my kids were driving me nuts, I had thoughts and visions of slamming my kids into a wall. I wouldn't go towards an intention or a plan to do that, but it's a thought. So is there like a gradation if there's suicidal thoughts that just kind of come in and out? And then what would you say? Is it intentions and then plan? How does it? Yeah. If I would know when I'm planning, I'm like, all right, I'm really in the danger zone. Mm-hmm. And what am I doing? And that's the same when I talk to people. If, you know, having the thought, that's fine. And talking about it, silence kills men. This myth is going away. But people used to think that if I said suicide, that's giving people the idea to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, no. And why does suicide happen in one school and it spreads? It happens because all those pained people 
say like, oh, that got him out. You know, they were already paying. They're already thinking about it. So, you know, mm. with the act, speaking of it does not make it worse, does not make it intensify. Mm. But thoughts, I think I've seen stats as high as like 90% of humanity has a suicidal thought at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. And it can just be like, you know, I quit. I give up. I had enough. Like these are common things. You know, life can be stressful. Life can be tough. And, you know, especially during the pandemic, you know, where we're experiencing a catalysmic times and the whole world's experiencing it. So mm-hmm. in one sense, this could bring us all together. In the other sense, it's isolating people because we're not allowed to be together for a long time. Sure. Right? But yeah, thoughts are common. Thoughts are fine. It's just a thought. It can be changed. When you're dwelling on the thought, you're like, oh, maybe that was a good idea. Oh, maybe. And when you start planning, when you start ruminating, you've really upped it. And that's when it's important to let people know. I always had this weird sense of honesty that if you ask me, like, are you safe? Can you promise me that, Andy, you're going to be safe this week and I can leave you? I would, you know, I'm confident I will live through these next few days, no matter what's going on. So, you know, I would be able to do that. But it was rare for people just on the streets, friends or family to even do that because they were afraid to speak of it. Such an interesting thing, man. I think about that level of honesty and really being able to check in with yourself. I'm just thinking about where it relates and pertains to me in terms of thoughts that were not actually our thoughts. We're not the product of our thought. I mean, I have crazy thoughts all the time. Stuff that just enters my head. I'm like, whoa, where the hell is that? What combination of a weird movie I saw a long time ago on accident and something I'm feeling emotionally right now that I can't quite put my finger on produced that image because I don't even want to tell anybody about that. But the power of that thought that can grow and fester if not spoken about. And I know this is a big thing for you. It's just the vulnerability, the ability to reveal what's there without judgment or fear, without judgment of myself or the fear of judgment from somebody else, just to be able to say, I have this thought. I thought about jumping off of that bridge, that bridge we just jumped over. I thought about pulling over and jumping off of it. I don't actually want to do that, but that went through my mind. And to have that be received by somebody is what I'm hearing is the power. Yeah. Huge fear for me was that if anybody really knew how I felt, they would run. Nobody would stand with me, but I'm sure you find this work with guys too, of all ages. When one man goes, I'm feeling this, others always go, me too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So no matter what you're going through, you're not alone. Millions of people have probably gone through it already. Someone else, you know, it might be going through it right now. And people, you know, have survived it just fine too. But if you keep it all to yourself, if you think you got to go along with the facade and pretend everything's okay and you get it all figured out, you don't need anybody's help. That's the recipe for disaster. And I think also acknowledging that that's more comfortable, more comfortable to just sit and stew. It doesn't necessarily mean it feels good, but I think a lot of times, regardless of whether it's a suicidal thought or what if people know that I've, you know, thousands of dollars are dead or that I cheated on my wife or whatever it is, that the discomfort of what it would take to say that out loud and not know where that's going to go or how that's going to land for somebody. It's like, well, it's easier for me to just sit on that. (laughs) We all have huge fear of the unknown. But man, we're not supposed to be afraid. Mm. So what's going to win? Mm. <laughs> and usually people just shut down. That's what ends up winning. And then that makes us lose. Yeah, man. That old narrative is really a catch-22. You really can't win, right? <laughs> right. I find it's because you're trying to live by some external definition. Sure. Just throw it away, mm-hmm. right? If the narrowing of your choices doesn't feel good, like just open it up. Well, maybe I'm wrong. And that's one thing I used to think I was certain. You're like, I was right. Life sucks that you die. I'm right. I know about this. And as I grew up, I was like, wow, now I'd love to be wrong. Mm. Like I'm so much more willing to be wrong. I thought when I was younger, I thought being right was the most important thing. And I still think that's valid for a lot of guys, mm-hmm. right? It's part of the facade that we got it all figured out. Mm-hmm. Like being masculine is I know what I'm going to do. You make a choice. I'm doing it. And there's no turning back. And, you know, if the comfort zone 
is horrible and disgusting and you it's full of shame and guilt, but it's the only thing you know, it still feels better than what you're afraid of. Absolutely. Well, let's rewind again a little bit, go back in time to the turn. You said you started to talk about when you started to see some glimmers of light and different possibility. What, what actually happened? What was it that led to that? Again, it was this notion, since I tried to get out, I'm not good at living, I'm not good at dying, so there must be a reason that I'm alive. I'm being forced to stick around. There must be some point to this. Yeah. So it began to take responsibility for my life. And until then, I felt like a victim. When I first had my suicidal thoughts and I was going to doctors and making attempts, every psychiatrist I saw gave me a different diagnosis, but they all said brain chemistry. Like you're, so again, I'm dysfunctional, I'm broken. Nobody said it can change. Nobody said it was just, yep, you have bad chemistry, kid. Here's some pills. End of story. And I had horrible side effects to every psych medication I had ever been put on. And I was like, if this is normal, it made me more suicidal. I don't sure. want anything to do with this. If I was so like doped up. I remember like walking into my locker in high school, just face first, like thinking it was a door. I'm like, oh no, that's the door into my locker. I can't go that way. You know, it was bad. It was gross. I had uh, lithium was common then. I don't even know these days, but I was on lithium, which can give you kind of a tremor. Mm-hmm. I had full body shakes. There was a point I couldn't walk. I was falling down. Wow. At one point I was hospitalized and I had some sort of psychotic reaction to whatever they're giving me. I had tactile hallucinations. I could feel giant spiders walking on me and I knew it was fake. I was having fun. It was like, I like horror movies. I'm like, this is crazy. And like, wow. And they told my parents that some friends of mine must've given me street drugs. Wow. But years later, I got the records back and it said toxic reaction. Like in all of their data, they owned that, whoa, we did something wrong to this kid. But telling us as a family, they tried to pass the buck. One of the things that I think is an undertold story of our recent history is the experimental nature of psychiatric medicine. It's one of those things, one of those stories that really like weighs on my heart. It makes me feel viscerally uncomfortable just knowing the things that humans did to other humans not very long ago. Some would even say currently too that there's still like a ridiculously amount of over-medication and not really knowing what we're giving people to treat things that we don't fully understand. But that because society didn't know what to do with folks in those situations a couple decades ago, we would just throw at them whatever we could to keep them, quote unquote, under control, right? To keep them alive and under control. When you cut off any end of your emotion, emotions are, it's polarity. There's a pole of, it's not just, here's a good emotion, here's a bad It's this range of emotions. And when you chemically alter your ability to go down, you're also limiting how high you can feel. You just keep living in this narrower, narrower range. You know, I've met people that went on antidepressants and it saved their lives. They just felt good. They noticed a boost. like, great, awesome. Also met people that had my experience. My bad experience, I would often take that, see, I should be dead. But no, it just means that's not for me, but what else is out there? Like there's infinite ways to feel better. There's just no limit to all the potential modalities and energy work and all these things that I found that work for me that can make us feel better. Mm -hmm. But I've met guys that their children have died and they go to the psychiatrist and get put on meds. No, you should feel sad. Like don't deny that. And we're used to trying to just chemically alter ourselves, street drugs or pharmaceuticals to not feel. And, you know, life is meant to be felt. And I find when we're willing to feel the emotion that shows up, the moment it shows up, it passes quickly. It passes easily. Mm-hmm. we struggle as humans with emotions when we try to fight them, resist them, decide, no, this is the right time and I don't want to feel it now. Every emotion will be felt. But if you try to deny it and control it, it comes out in distorted ways. Your anger comes out at people that you actually love. Your love comes out for substances or strangers. Like it's just all distorted. But when we're willing to feel what shows up, the moment it shows up, that's how we can navigate our lives better and really use our emotions. 
every emotion serves us. Yeah, that's a really great thing to pull back. And of course, you can speak to the feeling so well. I mean, that's been your mission for so many years now, really being a voice for inspiring and encouraging men to feel. And I tend to agree with you there because I've always believed, I think of Peter Levine in Waking the Tiger talking about trauma and how trauma will continue to live in our bodies unless we allow ourselves to feel it and process it. We have a built-in hardware that knows what to do when trauma comes in, but if we block it and try to repackage, repurpose it, it doesn't go away. I think the same is true with feelings, that there's a natural course that we need to go through. And we already spoke to the one side of the taboo of feeling, right? The taboo of having emotions, mostly because other people weren't comfortable with their emotions. And because we're empathic, it's like, oh, don't pass the hot potato because I already burnt my hands with that one. And so there's like the social cultural level of just getting more comfortable talking about these things having the conversations, being able to speak about our fear, our anger, our grief, and then to be in those spaces together collectively as community. Now, would you say that that's one of the, I know you said there's a lot of different ways that you can feel better. Would you say that community or some element in there is a common thread that everybody needs in order to get through it? Oh yeah. It's vital. We are social creatures, right? We are meant to bond, you know, talk about being empathic. Like we, you know, science shows we have mirror neurons. If I see someone and I can see their emotions, I'm going to feel those same emotions. Mm-hmm. Like we are wired to feel each other. You don't have to yigno spirit. You don't have to get to the, the great Buddhist thoughts that we're all one. You don't have to get that. Just like, no, I look at you. I feel what you're doing. Like my eyes register that and I match it. It's just science shows this over and over. So we're wired for community, our whole biology, our whole ancestry, our history. We survive in tribes. We must come together. No man is an island. America was kind of founded on this myth that I'll go west all alone and I'll build my home on the plane and I will show, hunt my food down and I will take care of everything. And like, no, people will die at age 30 then. Like, you know, now we're, we last longer. So there's more to process. There's more to fear. You can't stuff and hide things because it will come take its toll. So many of the diseases that take us down are rooted in trauma and stored stress and unprocessed energies and emotions in our bodies. I just had a conversation with, a, we did a four-way interview just yesterday and we were talking about decolonization, decolonization of masculinity and really zeroing in on that topic. And I do think that so much of this is attached to that colonial manifest destiny, lone wolf capitalist mentality that made its way over and permeated in a big way over the past three, four, almost 500 years now. I don't want to get too far off topic with that, but I think there is something about, we've already spoken about culture and society shifting and changing. Let me actually take it this direction for a second. So I'm sure over the years, being in these conversations with men, you've seen a lot of guys who were able to find their way through just like yourself, who were able to make it past some of those thoughts and get to a place where they're excited about life again. What would you say, is there anything that are some common threads or some things that everybody who's made it through has demonstrated or done for themselves? It's really taking responsibility. It's not blaming others. Like, I can't make you feel anything. I can do things, but how you feel, how you react, you really own that. But we're not taught that that's true. But they go, they offended me. They made me upset. It's all you. It's all you. I'm just this victim. I'm a tumbleweed roaming through the universe, easily influenced by everything else. Mm -hmm. And yet we have this stoic macho bullshit. So how can they both be true? Right. Mm. But when I was willing to take responsibility for my life, that's the only time I could change my life. Mm. And I used to think responsibility meant blame. So that's why I didn't want anything to do with it but blame and responsibility are not the same thing. Okay. So to avoid feeling responsibility, we'll often will blame others. So I thought, well, if I'm responsible, then I must blame me. Oh no, it's not about blame. It's about, well, now without taking responsibility, I can't change anything. 
And no human being can change another human being. We can only change ourselves. Yeah. So once I realized that, like dive in, ah, so I, you know, discovered personal growth and spiritual growth and just this whole other world of energy work and meditation, all these things that made me feel different and feel alive and feel like I was finally in my body. I wasn't just trying to escape. I didn't just want to be six feet under and feel nothing. I want to zero in on that distinction between blame and responsibility for a second, because I get it. I understand it. But what did you discover that responsibility actually was apart from blame? It was empowering, right? It was being in control. Again, it was that true masculinity taking responsibility, not for others, but for yourself, right? I'm a man among men. I'm in charge of the ship. I'm the captain of my own thing. Let's do this, right? All of those empowering things, every bad Rocky speech is about taking responsibility, getting back up. Doesn't matter how many times you fall down, get back up. That's taking responsibility. To get knocked down by life, I would say they're like, screw this. I'm taking my ball. I'm going home. I'm checking out. I don't want to do this anymore. That was me giving up. Yeah. That was me blaming everything. That was me thinking my circumstances, which are always only temporary, my circumstances were stronger than me. Mm. When I realized that was not true, that was a game changer. And I think that's the universal story. I was just thinking about it in my head, like, where can I relate to this? Because I've had suicidal thoughts in my life now that we made that distinction, but there was really only one time in my life where it ever went to the point where I thought, maybe this is better. And it was because I had a serious back injury. I was in chronic pain with no option of how I was going to get out of it, but it was very short-lived. So I don't really claim to have that story. But when I was in my early 20s, I experienced a huge vacancy in purpose and clarity around what I wanted to do with my life and what my life was even about. And simultaneously starting to understand and appreciate the greater, I don't want to say evils of the world, but the pain and the sorrows of the world, a more worldly perspective. I had this like, well, what the fuck is the point moment? And it sent me into a few years of just constantly numbing myself, primarily with marijuana, but just looking for any way to escape it. And the common story I relate to and what you said was, it was that I really didn't want to take responsibility. I didn't want to take responsibility for my life and my circumstance. I didn't even know where to go. And I think what happens is whether it's weed or it's suicide, we're always looking for our exit strategy whether it's like a momentary exit strategy or a permanent exit strategy, we're always looking for how can I get away from this because I don't know where else to go. Yep, totally agree. And as a kid, like I was searching for meaning. I was asking the questions that no other kids my age seem to be asking about or certainly weren't doing it out loud or to me. But, you know, meaning is hugely important. And, you know, one thing I've discovered as you have, service makes me feel good. Right. That wasn't part of elementary school. That wasn't part of kindergarten about how to grow up, you know? Yeah. And speaking of growing up, whenever, you know, as a really young child or at all ages, Russ, where do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. And as a really youngster, I would say an astronaut or a garbage man, they both seemed equally cool to me. <laughs> and people would just laugh. And then later they didn't laugh. They would start judging. Well, you can't be that. Oh, you're, you know, you astronaut. Well, you got to get into the Air Force Academy. You got to be doing all these things. I don't know if you can do that, kid. And like, oh, all right. Well, I guess now it's just garbage man. But people start taking the anything is possible energy away from me. Mm. And then I became afraid to answer anything. So I would just say, I don't know, because I was afraid of making the wrong choice, afraid of the judgment. I was afraid, again, didn't want to take responsibility. So the way to avoid responsibility, never make a choice. I was ranked third in my high school class. And when that came out mid-year in my senior year, I panicked. I stopped going to school. I wanted to flunk out. I thought I was, you know, I'm just the king of the idiots in this little town. I was sure if I went to college, I'd be found out for the fraud that I am. They'll know I can't go. So I tried to flunk out of high school mm. and teacher just kept giving me A's because, well, we know if you were here, Andy, you would have had an A. <laughs> I'm like, no, don't you see what I'm trying to do? <laughs> you know? But again, I didn't want responsibility. I kept shunning, pushing it away. 
But taking responsibility, it's the only way you can improve your life. It's the only way you can improve the life of the next generation. It's the only way they can change the world. It's easier to look at problems. That's your problem. That's their problem. Why don't you go do something about that? You know, as Gandhi said, it's just perfect wisdom. You know, be the change you want to see in the world. And that's the opportunity before every man. You know, it makes me think also about the opportunity that we have, the opportunity that's there for us to choose to do it a different way. And I remember, I think for anybody who's using some sort of escapism to get away from responsibility and facing our challenges in life, I think a lot of folks find that there's some sort of a connection to something bigger. That's why I think service is a great outlet into that. As soon as you're, I don't love me that much, but I love you enough to do something for you. And then, oh, wow, it feels really good when I'm being of service to other people. It could be that simple just to get the ball rolling a little bit. I think also spirituality. I know there's a very big spiritual component with a lot of these rehabilitative programs and modalities just to connect to something like a higher power, you know, source, God, creator, whatever you want to call it. Did you find that there is some advantage or benefit to connecting to a sense of spirituality too? That's part of that process? For sure. If I had never found that, I would not be alive. I'm sure of it. Because I thought I was just this meat suit. My meat suit's defective. Well, I just, I'll return it. I give up. Like I wasn't, I don't want to get to heaven. I wasn't afraid of going to hell. I just wanted everything to stop. And I didn't know I could change my life. I thought my only choice was to end it. So that was all my mistake in thinking. It wasn't until I had again, kind of energetic experiences and mystical experiences that I really like, oh my God, I've experienced something that tells me I'm more than this, Mm. right? I really am a spiritual being having a physical experience. And again, it just transformed my life. Yeah. I had a very similar experience myself. I know you said you grew up without a religious background. I grew up with a, I don't even know if I would call it a religious background. My grandfather was a deacon. My grandmother played organ in the church for her whole life, really. But my parents, they weren't really religious, but they sent me to Catholic school and they sent me you know, to Sunday school and did all the sacraments and everything. But it never made sense to me. I was never connected to it. I was just going through the motions because it was the thing to do. And so by the time I got out on my own and got to college, college, I was like, I rejected it, but then there wasn't anything there. And it wasn't until I started to really connect for me in the beginning, it was just meditation. And then it was exploring some Buddhist concepts. And then it was going down the road of Native American indigenous wisdoms and spending time in those ceremonial spaces and connecting with something that made sense to me. I don't think it's so much important which of those spiritual paths are, even if it's your own, even if it's just something that comes from within you that is not something you're reading in a book or someone else is teaching you, that, but that there's a, something that connects you again to like the ethereal, I think is so important because that's what happened for me. Yeah, it's all about, you can have the experience reading a book or in a class or program, but it's all about your experience. Like I can't convince you that you're a spiritual being. I can only invite you to things that might make you experience something that goes, oh, wow, there is more to me. I'm not just this flesh and blood, huh? Amazing, but we are. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. one of the things like, The things I now do on a daily basis, the things I do with clients are things I made fun of for years that I thought were nonsense. The the first book I wrote was about positive affirmations, which I thought was just absolute BS until (laughs) I did them, felt something like, oh my God, this stuff is real. I I feel better. I feel different. Like, how can this be? And so it's, it's a willingness to be wrong. It's a willingness to try new things, to realize that there's always more to life, to experiences. Mm. When we're at a place, if it's due to chronic pain, they just uh, you feel hopeless and helpless. That's the one-two punch that limits us, that makes us think that the only way out is to end everything. It's just a huge, horrible lie. Yeah. Why do we reject that? I think of that joke about the guy who's, you know, 
he's standing in knee deep water and his boat breaks down and someone comes by to save him. And he's like, Oh no, my Lord God and creator is going to come save me. I'll be fine. And then the water gets progressively higher and the boats come and he keeps rejecting them. And then he dies. And then eventually he, uh, he goes to heaven and says, Hey, what happened? God, he's like, I sent you three boats, <laughs> right? What is that tendency for us to reject the help, to reject the healing, right? To say, oh man, the positive affirmations, that's garbage. That doesn't do anything for anybody. We want to think of ourselves, our ego wants to think of ourselves as really complicated. If there's an easy solution to feel better, well, then we've been idiots forever for not doing it. So without trying things, because I was in that same way, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. I'm like, try it. Try the things you are pretty sure don't work and see if they do, right? That's the only way you can know for sure. It's only your lived experience is what tells you the best way to live your life. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. That's just like another clever ruse that the ego plays on us. Well, that'll never work. It wouldn't do anything for you because of it might be uncomfortable the first time that you say some positive affirmations out loud to yourself in the mirror. It might feel awkward the first time you have a conversation with somebody about your suicidal thoughts or the first time you sit down with somebody and say, hey, I have a problem. I've been addicted to this for you know several years. That first leap seems so big, but in the rear view mirror, you're like, oh, that was just a speed bump. <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to take conscious effort to choose something new that mm. takes energy and your choice. And, you know, what really convinced me that, again, I was raised, I was at the mercy of my thoughts, they made my emotions and my chemistry was wrong. It starts with chemistry. I believe it's our thoughts that create our emotions that create our chemistry. Mm. Again, I took responsibility. Mm-hmm. There was a point I was down, depressed. I was looking out my bedroom window and looking at trees. And every time I looked at a tree, I could just picture myself hanging from the tree. Mm. And then my dog came in to the room with a tennis ball in her mouth. And I'm like, oh, you want to play? And I'm like, my mood, my energy changed. Like, wait a minute. I look at the tree. Like, I just want to die. Look at, oh, go out and play. And I would feel the difference from just those two thoughts. Like, holy crap, has it always been this easy? And it is that easy, but you have to keep doing it. Like the bad thoughts would come back because I was used to them. Right. We fall into ruts. It's literal. And, and in our brains, the most thought pathways are the deepest ruts. So they take more energy and effort to get out of. So anytime you fall into a rut, doesn't mean, see, I was wrong. It's all a waste of time. Like, no, see, just got to do it again. Because that moment you felt good, that's truth. That potential is there. As we're getting ready to wrap up here, Andy, I'm really appreciating the way that you show up and just how confident you are in your message. It's just, it's really refreshing to experience someone like that. Not confidence just in feeling like you have something powerful to say, but just the, the conviction. That's really the word. You're a very convicted person. And I appreciate that about you, man. Before we go into some last things I want to do here to wrap up with you, is there anything that you haven't said yet? Anything that we've left off the table of this conversation that's important to mention? Share. The secret behind men, we are all afraid. Just know whatever you're afraid of as a guy, whatever you're afraid to speak of, the guy in front of you is probably feeling the same thing. We are afraid of sharing our fear. We're afraid of being fearful. We're afraid of the shame of being judged and you know being disrespected, being ostracized. So I just keep finding that fear drives men so much more than any of us realize. But when you're willing to just admit that, well, maybe I'm afraid. And just, you know, you can only be courageous if you first recognize fear. So of all the guys that want to be tough and brave, sometimes the bravest thing you can do is ask for help. I love that, man. What a great place to end. Before we do, I, I want to ask you a few lightning questions, and then you can tell us where everybody can go to find you, follow you, and listen to the things that you're doing. So you ready for the lightning round? Sure. <laughs> All right. So what's one thing you've learned in your life you wish you knew when you were 18? Oh, God. That's a whole book I've written. That I'm not just physical. That spirituality is real. I am more than I seem to be. Love it. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Love. Love for yourself, love for others. But just, yeah, the foundation of love can save a soul. All right. And what does the world need most from men right now? Responsibility. 
men have kind of been leading the world from a place of victimhood and blame. But if we, we are a powerful force, masculinity is powerful, but it needs honest, open, authentic, vulnerable responsibility. Okay, man. All right. Well, tell us where we can go to follow you, find you, work with you, give everybody the, all the information. Cool. So the best place to go is the, as in T-H-E, andygrant.com. There's a guided meditations button. You can get some free downloads and experience all this energy and woo-woo stuff I've kind of been referred to and the tools that literally saved my life. You can discover Real Men Feel there as well. The Real Men Feel podcast has been going on for over five years. We're on every podcast platform. You can also watch on YouTube and on Facebook Watch. But really, it's about the invitation to explore you deeper. We need more men to know themselves and to be willing to be wrong. And I encourage every guy to just decide right now, I would rather be happy than right. And that just opens up such a world of possibility. And it's a possibility that makes you feel better, that makes your family, your friends, your coworkers, everyone can feel better when each of us are willing to be wrong. That's a gem right there. What a great place to end. Andy, thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your life. Thank you for choosing to be here and everything that you do, man. Really grateful for the work you're putting out there in the world. It's so critical, so essential right now. And a lot of respect to you, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, y'all. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure you check in at risingman.org for links and resources for this episode and others, as well as your next opportunity to challenge yourself to step it up in your life. What are you going to do this summer to become a bigger part of this community, to challenge yourself to grow, to challenge yourself to become a stronger leader, more capable, more insightful, more prepared to handle the adversities of life? What's it going to be? Go to risingman.org and check out what's there for you. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to us and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the rising man movement. Give us a shout out on Instagram at rising man movement as well. We love hearing from you guys. Shout out to the whole rising man community, each and every one of you from the top to the bottom, inside and out. Thank you guys for your efforts each and every week to keep this movement moving. We're three years in now, guys, three years, three years of rising man. And we're only going up from here. Thanks to you. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.